We have been in the series uh, called They Turn the World Upside Down, and we, we spent time in the Upside Down Kingdom where we learned about the Sermon on the Mount and how uh, Jesus is teaching us to live a completely different way. And in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit come down. Jesus tells him in Acts chapter 1, here's what's going to happen. Uh, there, there's going to be a moment when the Spirit that I told you back when, in the book of John, when he tells them that there's going to be a helper, counselor that's going to come. And when he does, he's going he's to fill you. You're going to be filled with this thing called a Holy Spirit. We get to Acts chapter 1. They're all waiting on a hill. Jesus is about to... He's about to leave, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we hear Jesus tell him these words when he says, listen, here's, here's the deal, guys. Uh, you're going to go back to Jerusalem, and when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be filled to be my witnesses. You will have power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And Jesus leaves, and they stand there waiting, and angels have to come down and say, hey, didn't, weren't you given some instructions? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to go back to Jerusalem. And they do. We get to Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit comes. And, and he, he doesn't just come like very subtly. Uh, he comes with a mighty rushing wind. Because how many of you know when the Spirit is in the room, things change. It's not normal. And so he comes with this power. You can't be a spirit of power and come in meekness. He came in power. And when he does, he, he fills the entire room, and he touches every person in this place. And the disciples are speaking in this language that no one knew what it was outside. Like, like, and here's what I mean by that. Like if, if somebody was from Spain and they were speaking Spanish and you all of a sudden had the gift to speak Spanish. Anybody ever prayed that when you took a foreign language class? I remember in college I asked God, like, I am not going to pass this oral Spanish exam. If you would please, God, just give me the gift of tongues in this moment. And he did. And I got a D. And D stands for degree in college. And so he, everybody starts hearing this language. It's... it's the gospel is being proclaimed in their own language. And they know that this can only happen from the Holy Spirit because there's no way these bunch of goon guys here, the Peter, I mean, you got Peter and you got John and you got James who's, and Thomas who's not even sure that this thing's even real. And all of a sudden, they are proclaiming the gospel outside of their own power. And then when we move through the book of Acts, we see some incredible things take place where the church begins to take form because they're being filled by the Holy Spirit. And they find themselves in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where they devote themselves to a few things. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to worship and, and being underneath the teaching. And, and then the early church was marked by prayer and by gathering together in unison under the, the banner of Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not to just gather, but to gather and be scattered. You know, there, there's, Jesus told us that we're to be the salt of the earth. You know, salt, too much salt in one place is kind of nasty, right? Y'all have been to the restaurants and you go to put salt on your plate and then some little kid decided before you got there to unscrew the cap so you dumped it and there was all this salt on your steak, right? Too much salt in one place is not good. And so these disciples are being scattered everywhere. And the gospel is being proclaimed and it's being preached. And then we have this guy named Paul that enters the scene Paul, and there's a, a common misconception, everybody. People are like, well, the moment that he met Jesus, his name changed from Saul to Paul. That's not true. Saul was his, uh, was his Roman name, and Paul was going to be his Jewish name. If you'll pay attention through the scriptures, you'll notice that depending on the audience that he is talking to will determine which of the names that he uses, whether he falls underneath his Roman allegiance or if he falls underneath 
his Jewish allegiance. And so he, he'll use that to his advantage. And Paul is a Roman. He grew up and, and went into these rabbinical schools. He knew more of the law than anybody. And he is against the church early on, so he decides the best way to, to rid the, the rid of, of this gospel is just to get rid of the people. And what he didn't realize is like it was kicking an anthill. When he kicked it and he thought he was killing and persecuting some people, that it was going to die. But it just continued to grow and to grow. And then one day, Paul's just walking on this road to Damascus. And as he's walking, he has an encounter with Jesus. Okay, he goes blind. He hears the voice of God. He falls off his horse. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And then after a couple of days, he gets his sight back. And can you imagine? This dude has, has traveled through Israel, and he has killed people in the early church, probably people that were your family members, and then he shows up to church on Saturday as a first-time guest and wants to sit beside you. Paul. And you know what they did? They told Paul, you can't come to church here because you, you don't act like us. You don't dress like us. You hurt us. You kill people in our family. You cause a lot of pain. You can't go here. Don't fill out a connect card because it costs too much. Just go away. That's what they told him. Can you believe that? You shouldn't believe it because that's not what they told him. What they said was, have a seat right here, Paul. Because you're going to experience the grace and the love of Jesus. And it transformed Paul's life to where we have most of the New Testament being written by this apostle. And so Paul, as you look at his life, there's a, there's a in, in, in the theology world, there, there is this thing called the trajectory of Paul. When, when Paul first has his encounter and he starts talking about himself, he's like, man, I, I am a sinner. I'm a bad dude. Like, I got some problems. The more that, the closer that Paul gets to Jesus and the older that he gets, he'll start making this statement towards the end of just being, hey, I'm a pretty bad guy, too. I am a sinner, and not just that, I am the chief of all sinners because the closer that we get to Jesus the more exposed our sin should be it's called mortification of putting our sin to death and the only thing that can expose that would be that of Jesus and so Paul is moving through the book of Acts and he's working and he's starting churches and planting churches and we see letters that he's written to Ephesus and to the church in Corinth and we see the Romans the, the, the book of Romans that he wrote which is a powerful theological book and, and then we come to this moment in Acts chapter 25 Paul is nearing the end he has done so much through the power of the Holy Spirit he's always saying it's not anything that I'm doing it's what the Spirit is doing in and through me and there was so much power this gets really crazy that when Paul couldn't be in certain places people would say hey Paul could you just touch this little handkerchief right here and send it back and people were touching the handkerchief that Paul touched and they were being healed that's power but that doesn't happen until Paul says it's not me it's not by my doing because when I was left to my own devices I was killing this movement or thought I was but now I've had a change and I'm helping this movement grow by starting the church. And then we get to Acts chapter 25. We, we see all throughout the scriptures, Paul's getting the gospel to Rome. That's where he's trying to go. And in, in Acts chapter 28, he wants to get the gospel to Rome. Now this is 2,997.4 miles from where the, the Holy Spirit first descended on the church. And he's ready to take this gospel to Rome. And he probably has his ideas of how I'm going to get the gospel to Rome. And one of those ways that he thinks he's going to get the gospel to Rome, he's just going to go down to, to Caesarea in the harbor, and he's going to jump a boat, 
in the summer months and he's just going to hop the boat and take on over to Rome and it's all going to be good. But how many of you know that, that God's plans are often not the same as our plans? He's got a different approach. And if Paul had to choose, if it was a pick-your-own-journey kind of thing, Paul would have gone with his plan of just go on the, the carnival cruise line and take it on into Rome. But God said, I'm gonna, I'm, I've got a different plan. Because I, it's, it is about getting the gospel to Rome. And I do, Paul, I do want you to get the gospel to Rome. But we, we often forget about the meantime between where we are and where we want to be that God wants to do a work in that meantime. And so here we are in Acts chapter 25, and we're going to briefly cover very quickly today Acts chapter 25, 26, 27, and 28. Here we go. So in these last few chapters, the Apostle Luke is recounting Paul's journey to get to Rome. And there are four things that I, I want to point out in this journey that I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to know. But I also think it's four things the Holy Spirit wants us to, to live out because this is what turns the world upside down when we live out these values. So let me give you your first point. I believe the Spirit would tell us that we have to live a life that causes wonder. Live a life that causes wonder. It causes people to question why we would do the things that we do. When Paul left the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he got to Jerusalem and he was observing the Passover and looking at everything that was happening and he was seeing everything that had been planned. And then there were some of the Jewish authorities that recognized him because they saw him as a traitor and they said, you know what? We want this man arrested and we want this man killed. And they made this lie up and said, here's the reason why Paul has come here not to observe the Passover. He came here to start a political revolt and we need to do something before he does that. So they created this lie. So now Paul has a target on his back. And so when he was questioned, the Romans learned that, oh, wait a second, because the Jewish people were trying to throw him in there to start a political revolt. And the Romans questioned him and realized it was a lie. But the Romans wanted to protect Paul in a way, but they also wanted to do what was right with the Jewish people because they didn't need them to revolt. You remember that's the same thing that kind of happened with Jesus? And they didn't know what to do with Paul. Like, do we arrest Paul? Do we let Paul go? If we let him go, this is going to happen. So let's just throw him in jail. And for two years, Paul just sat in jail for a false accusation. And there's this guy named Felix at the time who, who he, he's a governor. And he arrests Paul. Years later, Felix leaves office and a guy named Festus comes in. If you're looking for the name of your next child, Acts 25 has some interesting ones. In fact, Festus is reviewing the case. His new responsibility when he discovers Paul in prison, he wants to figure out why in the world is this guy here and why has he been here for two years? Because Paul's reputation has gone before him. He had heard the story about Paul and all that Paul had done, but why is he here as a prisoner for two years and nothing is being done? So he calls Paul to stand in front of him and he wants to, he wants to ask Paul. And the first thing he says when, when Paul comes out is this. He, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, this is, a, this is a really big piece right here when he says that. Because, see, they're looking at him as Jewish, and when Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, well, he's a Roman citizen. Guess what they have to do? They now have to take him to Caesar. He doesn't get tried in the Jewish court because he is a Roman citizen by birth. And he says, so I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And the Caesar at this time is a guy named Nero. If you'll do some, some investigation and search up Nero, Nero was not a fan of Christians at all. His job, basically, he was, he was a Paul that was crazier. 
Because his thing was, I'm going to eradicate Christianity. So he would throw these big elaborate parties at his house, invite all the Romans over, and they would party into the night, where at night they needed light. So what they would do was take these Christians, and they would dip them in oil, and they would spear them and hang their bodies and light them on fire. And that would be the lights that they would have as they danced. And yeah, right? You show up to that party, you're going to leave pretty quickly. He was, he was notorious for finding ways to persecute, to cause damage to, to whatever it would take to stop this movement of Christians. So, so Paul's saying, I, I appeal to him. Like, I'm going to talk to that crazy guy. And so before they send Paul off to Caesar, there's another governor in this region named Herod Agrippa, and he comes and he visits Festus, and he says this, that I, I, hear, I hear you got this guy named Paul. I've heard about Paul. I know about Paul. I, I hear he's been here for quite a while. And he says this in Acts chapter 25, verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself, he replied. And he says, tomorrow you will hear him. Agrippa wants to know something. Why do all the Jewish people hate this guy? Because it seems like he's not done anything wrong. He's talking about this God and, you know, whatever. We all talk about our gods here in the Roman culture, but I, I need to know, like, what is it about this guy that they hate so much? So Paul's manner of life is causing people to ask a question. And I believe that our lives are supposed to provoke questions. Like, why, why are you so generous? Why do you speak so kind of people? Why do, why do you have hope in the midst of all this drama and all these things? Like, what, what is going on with you? Like, what's happening inside of you that makes you respond this way? Our lives should be one that provoke questions. And I know we're not in the same circumstances as Paul. We're not in prison. We haven't been falsely accused and arrested. But I realize that. But people should be able to look at us and say this, is that I don't get why you live the way that you do. What's different? What's different? Do our lives provoke questions, positive questions? Peter says this in chapter 3 of his book, 1 Peter. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So that, let's stop right there because that's pretty important. We're going to honor Christ, but we need to approach him as he's holy. He's, he, is, he is apart from everything else. He, he is the, the purification. He is everything that we could possibly need. And we need to honor him in that way that God is holy. And he says, always, talking to us, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that lives in you. Peter is saying this, that, listen, Peter's kind of going on this same thought that your life should be provoking a question. Because he's given us this direction that... When it happens, be ready to give a defense for why you have this hope in you, why your life is different. And in this time period, they're living among a corrupt nation. Sound familiar? Like they're, they're living among uh, all kinds of things in this Roman culture that go against anything that we would believe. But it would also make you cringe a little bit more than even what we see in today's culture. So people are so intrigued by how we live and what we do. And it's what sets it apart when you live out kingdom values. You think about this. In the way that we do our work, Paul says that everything that we do, we need to do it as if we're doing it unto Jesus. We do it unto the glory of God. 
That means the way that we parent our kids. That means the way we talk to the teller at the bank. That means, hey, students, the way that you sit down and whether you study or not study, that is worship. You study and do your work and do your classwork and do the best that you can to the best ability that you can to the glory of God. As athletes, we, we work not just on the field. We work off the field. We do everything that we can for the glory of God. It doesn't matter what it is. We drive to the glory of God. That's hard. Have y'all seen some of the people around here driving? Right? You know, there's, there's times that I'll get on 26 towards Charleston and my prayer life becomes like really, really strong in those moments. We, we should do everything towards the glory of God. Our lives should provoke questions. And by the way, the question is, why are you so great? It's not that I'm so great. It's because I serve a king who is. We got to recognize who we're pointing to. We are just a reflection of our Father. Just a reflection. So when people are coming to you wanting to know why things are the way they are, it's not a moment for us to take the platform and talk about how great we are. Because Jesus had already covered that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're not that great. But what it is is, good. listen, there was a point that I was lost, I was hopeless. Whatever your story but then Jesus entered the equation and changed everything. And I have committed my life to live out the gospel message of Jesus, of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's the change. That's the gospel message. So you, you need to make sure that your life is one that causes people to have wonder. Here's the other thing, and we see this in Acts chapter 26. We need to seize opportunities. You need to seize opportunities in the lifetime of the opportunity. That God will give us things and opportunities, and we will pray and pray. Well, I'm just waiting on God to tell me if I should do this, and we'll pray and we'll pray and we'll pray. And then the opportunity's gone. Because we use prayer as an excuse half the time to be faithful. And he says this in Acts chapter 26. This is the end of Paul's message. Paul goes on. Now he, he's showing us how all these Jewish prophets have, have prophesied and, about the coming of Jesus. I want you to understand, Paul is a prisoner in chains. And he has this opportunity to speak with a government official that could let him out. But watch what Paul does. He, he, not one time in this passage does he go. Could you get me out of here? Can, can you help me out? Because I didn't do it. You know I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. Like, just give me community service. Give me an ankle bracelet. Anything. Paul doesn't say any of that. He says this instead. He says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Now, he just jumped into a spiritual conversation. Okay? He, he just used, because he, he knows, yeah, Agrippa's Roman. He doesn't believe the same things, but he knows the prophets. And so he says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe, Paul says. And Agrippa said to Paul, he says, a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Hold, hold on, whoa. Did you see that power shift? This Roman official, full of authority and power. Paul says, do you believe the prophets? Because I know that you do. And Agrippa says, could you share with me for just a short time on how to be a Christian? Because he even saw something in Paul's life. In verse 29, Paul said, Whether short or long, 
I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul's life's on the line. Paul has a chance to plead his case towards a high government official. But he thinks this. Oh, snap, I've been given an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a Roman official. And he does. Think about it. What would we do in that situation? He, he seizes this opportunity. Do we see our lives in that way? Do, do we come to a point, is that how we see our profession? Is it's not just going to work every day and sitting behind a desk, but it is an opportunity to seize because the gospel can be proclaimed and preached through the way that we live and the things that we say. And Paul doesn't use it to his advantage. He uses it to leverage the kingdom. Because he had already told us that to, I'm going to die, and, and if they kill me, I get to be with Jesus. And if I don't, I get to proclaim the gospel some more. Now, how do you kill a guy like that? Because it's like, well, what's the fun in this? Like, I'm not taking anything from you. So you've got to seize opportunities. You get to verse 27, we're going to learn to not just seize opportunities. You've got you to embrace some sovereignty. This is, this is a good trip for Paul. He's at he's a Caesarea Maritime, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean. I've, stay, I've stood in his jail cell. Beautiful view. Beautiful view of, of the blue ocean. And he was surrounded by a coliseum on one side, and he had a, a hippodrome, which was like, it was, it was modern-day Roman NASCAR, but it was awesome because the, these hippodromes, they would horse race. But the deal was you were to take your chariot and try to knock somebody else off. There should be one man standing. Everybody else should be dead at the end of a hippodrome race. Okay, that this, was, this was what the Romans did for fun. So Paul's seeing all these things, and, but he's seizing opportunities, and, and he's proclaiming the gospel. So Herod and Festus decide we're going to put Paul on this boat, and we're going to sell him to Caesar because he's Roman. He should get the right to go speak to Caesar. So he gets on the boat. And in the middle of this, the boat gets swept up in a hurricane and it's blown out to sea, right? You can't make this stuff up. Well, you can, but you can't. And so here Paul's on this boat, and, and he's been arrested. He's been sitting in prison for two years. He's not complaining about it. He counts it all joy, including sitting in prison. He does everything to the glory of God, including being in prison. And he uses that as leverage to the point they're like, we're going to go ahead and send you on. He gets on the boat. And Paul's probably not thinking, hey, this is going to be a great cruise. I can't wait for all the shows and the dinners and the buffets. He just knows I'm going to Rome, but what is it in the meantime that God wants to do before I get there? And then life is going, and then he gets hit with a shipwreck. The, the hurricane comes up. They, they get caught, and the boat is torn to pieces. And they get lost for a month at sea. They're running out of everything. And Paul's not complaining. And he says this in verse 21 of chapter 27. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this, this injury and loss. Paul's like, hey, you know why we're here? We're here and we're shipwrecked, everybody, because you didn't listen to me. I told y'all not to do this. He was not trying to make friends on, on this cruise. And he says in 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart. Take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you. And everybody's going, Man, I hope you're right. Because we've been out here for a month. We've been out in this hurricane wind and the boat's torn to pieces and we don't know where we are. 
And then Paul's given this hope of saying, no one's going to lose your life. And you look at the next words. But only the ship. You're not going to die. But your little container of comfort that you're sitting on, it's not going to make it. It's going to be in pieces. And there are points that you're in the middle of life storms and the boat breaks and all you have are the broken pieces to hang on to. And, and they are clinging for their lives. And he says, listen, nobody's going to die, but the ship's not going with us. And for this very night, there stood before me an angel of God. Now they're thinking, this guy must have gotten into mushrooms or something. Now he's talking about talking to angels. Like, he's dehydrated. What's going on? And he says, I saw an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. I knew who I was looking at. And he said, do not be afraid. And Paul says, you must stand He's going to stand before Caesar. And he says, Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. They don't have it yet. Sometimes you've got to lean on somebody else to borrow a little bit of somebody else's faith to get through. Anybody testify to that? And he says, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But, there's always a but. Paul gives these good news, and he's always got some kind of but he has to throw in there. Nobody's going to die, but the boat's going, hey, we're going to get to where we need to be, but we've got to run this thing aground on some kind of island. We've got to get it stuck so we'll be safe. And so they do, and the boat breaks to pieces, and they end up on this island called Malta that you can go to today. Paul did not let the storm he didn't allow the storm to make him doubt God's control. Because he knew that God was directing the footsteps of Paul everywhere that he stood. Everything that he would come up against. Whether it was good or whether it was a bad circumstance. That God had meant it for good. That he had put Paul in this place for this time. So the fact that he saw the storm as God arranging all of these opportunities for him to share the gospel. Think about it. The Bible tells us in verse 37, there were 275 other people on this boat. Prisoners, just like him. They're not the best of the best. They were Roman citizens who had gotten themselves in trouble, and they too were going to Rome to be punished. And so Paul sees this not as an opportunity to complain. He's seizing the opportunity. He is, he is here seeing God's sovereignty that I am not on this boat and I'm not on a shipwreck. By chance, I am here because God has orchestrated and has allowed me to be here in this moment with these people. And I've got a congregation of 275 people on a boat, and they ain't going anywhere. And if they do, they have to go on an island, and the island's not very big, so they're not going to get away from me. I'm going to chase them down and preach the gospel. So Paul sees these soldiers and, they all, and these, these prisoners, and they all have one thing in common, that we are shackled in Changed, and they're all terrified, thinking we're all about to die. But then Paul is a fellow traveler, and he gives them this compelling platform that he begins sharing the gospel. It's going to be okay. You're not going to die. The comforts and the things that you hold on to, they are going to disappear, but God's going to put us exactly where we need to be. 
as a Christian, God does not always shield you from the storm. He allows you to go through the same things everybody else goes through so that you can show them what hope from within the storm looks like. What it's like to experience the presence of God in the storm. Have you ever thought about that? The reason that you're being allowed to go through some of these storms is because you have the best perspective from inside the storm. That when you're in it and you have your hope and everything comes out, there's something about hitting rock bottom that God really begins to show himself through your life. Because all your dependency comes on him. Your testimony to Jesus is more powerful when it comes from within the storm. But we'll say, God, please get us out of this. God, I don't want to do this. God, this is painful. And he's saying, listen, it's in brokenness and in weakness and in pain that Christ can shine brightest. Because that's when we're at our weakest of moments. So Paul's, the boat breaks and, and they get out and they end up on this island. All 270 plus passengers. It's cold. They've been in these cold rains. So Paul decides to make a fire and he reaches down for firewood. And when he does, a snake bites him right on the hand. And the people on the island of Malta, now he's got a bigger crowd. They're like, oh, this is what he gets. He's going to die. And they just sit back and wait for the venom to take place. But Paul never dies. And they say, you must be a God. And Paul takes the opportunity to go, I'm not a God, but let me tell you about one that is. And his God, his, the gospel message was proclaimed to the people, an unreached people group on an island of Crete. That, he could have complained about this whole situation. He, God gave him 270 plus opportunities on a boat to share the gospel and gave him who even knows how many people were on that island. And he stays there for a few years. And he never died from the snake bite. This is the verse, and we were talking about this in our small group the other day. There are churches out there that snake handle, and they dance with the snakes, and they get bit. They say, if you get bit and you have faith, you won't die. Um, that's where they get that verse from. We are not one of those churches, by the way. So if you have a snake, please do not bring it here. We have faith that we just should not touch them, and we'll be okay. So God... God will sometimes make you a fellow traveler on, on the boat of life with other people who experience hardship so that he can use you to put you on display so his hope can be displayed through you and in you. But here's the last thing. You got to live sent. You got to realize you are on mission. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28 that you are to go and make disciples of all nations. That you're to go. And we have to live as if we have a mission because we do have a mission. And we get to Acts chapter 28. Paul has been arrested for two years. The poor man's been in a boat wreck. He's been bitten by a snake. He's been put on an island. And then we get to chapter 28 and verse 30. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed. He stayed on the island of Malta. He stayed there in his own rented house. Found him an Airbnb there. And he welcomed all who could see him. He, hospitality, yeah, I got this house on this island. Y'all come, come on, I'll take anybody in that wants to come in. I'll speak, speak to you about this, this guy named Jesus. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. He wasn't going to let any situation, any comment, any person keep him from proclaiming the good news, the end of the book of Acts. Kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Because you're like... Well, what happened before Caesar? Why, why did Luke just end the book? It was just getting, is there like an Acts chapter 2? Like what's coming? Or Acts part 2? 
I, I think Luke does this for a very strategic reason. It's not about Paul. It's about the Spirit. We started with the Spirit. He ends with the Spirit. We don't, we don't know that the letter Paul wrote to the Romans indicates that he had hoped to go from Rome and he wanted to go into Spain. We, we know that. He wanted to be the first one ever to preach Christ in Spain. But Luke, Luke is just kind of writing this thing of, and we know that Paul's going to die, but Paul, Paul's dead. Paul's going to die. But the Spirit remains. The Spirit remains. And so because of that, here we are as a church 2,000 years later proclaiming the same gospel with boldness and without any hindrance to the people of Berkeley County in a time that God has put us here for this time in this place. And I believe that our job is to make Jesus famous, to proclaim his name every place that we go, to share the hope and the gospel message, introduce people to Jesus, every place that we go. We are to carry on that torch of the early apostles going with the Spirit, in cadence with the Spirit, to reach people. See, the, the torrential wind of the Spirit we see fill the church in Acts and scatter them to the ends of the earth is the same Spirit that wants to blow through this church to fill the streets of our communities and the lives in our office places and our schools and you name it. He wants to fill those places. So we have to live sent. We have to live as this, if, if not compartmentalize our Christianity, not to have a spiritual apathy, but understand that you and I have been filled with the Spirit of God. What are, what are we holding back on? We've got to live sent. We live sent and are inviting people. Are we inviting people into conversation? Are we inviting them? You think about Paul. Paul Paul's talking to a, a high government official and he's, ha he's engaging into this conversation of, you believe the prophets, right? And look what happens. It opens up a spiritual conversation. Let me take the pressure off of you. Because I think a reason a lot of us do not share Jesus with people is because we think that it's some weird thing. And we have been taught some very weird practices. Go knock on somebody's door at 9 o'clock in the morning and ask them, what's going to happen if you got hit by a bus today? That's the wrong approach. Because my, my follow-up question was, what would happen if you got punched in the face today? Like, what would, it's 9 o'clock, people, on a Saturday. Like, think, think about it. Our approaches to evangelism are awful. Take the little fake $100 bill that folds, and it looks like a $100 bill, and you leave that as a tip, and you open it, and it just has the gospel on there. And you're like, you think they're reading that fake $100 bill at that point? Because you just gave them a fake. Well, that's your tip, eternal life. All right, well, pick this plate up off the floor. You know what I mean? It's like we've complicated evangelism. All, all we see here is that Paul just engages with conversation and looks for opportunity to share the, the gospel message. Well, I don't know what to say. Well, cool, because you don't have anything to say. The Spirit wants to speak through you. Well, how do I know that? Just go engage and let him do his thing. He's really good at just doing his thing whenever he wants to. This is a reason that Jesus said that the Spirit is like the wind. He comes and goes as he wants. It's like a teenager. Just does whatever, you know. 
He's, he's fire and he's wind. He's uncontrollable. He will do what he needs to do, and he wants to do that through you. You have to be willing and, and able to say, listen, I will have conversations. I will invite people to coffee. I, I will talk through these things. I will pray with people on the spot. I will engage with my community. I, I, was, I had this thought yesterday as I'm cutting this grass, and I feel like that's some, for some reason I just I hear better that way. But I was, I was thinking of a situation that was happening, and I'm complaining about it. Right? Just like, I wish, God, I just, and you get on like the Berkeley County Growth and Development page because the Holy Spirit just works there. And um, <laughs> I don't think he does. But I'm, I'm just complaining in my head about why do people, why do, people do stupid stuff? Why do, why do I got to say dumb things? Why do I got to be dumb sometimes? And, and it's just like this thought just dropped in from him of going, it wouldn't be like that if you would just proclaim the gospel and talk to people about who I am. Like, you're, you're complaining about it. How much time have you prayed for them? How much time have you tried to sit down and talk with them about this? Right? And then it was in the moment that I had to go, you're right. You're, this is right. So we, we have to live sent. Take risk in your invitations. Take risk on your conversations. Because whatever the Spirit leads, He's going to lead you to where you need to be and talk to who you need to talk to. Live sent in inviting. Live sent in your volunteering. And you're serving. I mean, I want us to, to start giving back to those areas that, that have been given to you, especially within the church, like kids' ministry. We love it. All right? You, you think about our kids' ministry. We don't babysit kids here. Right? And we, we don't babysit kids. Andy Stanley says this. I love it. He says that what we try to do is we try to place an anchor in the heart that goes so deep that they won't drift far from it when they hit the insanity years, other words known as middle school. Our kids' ministry is the tip of the spear for the most accessible, vital mission field in America. And it's the least volunteered and least helped area in all of our church, and not just ours, all over America. We want to go support missionaries, and that's great. We have future missionaries sitting right back here that nobody's making the investment in. And here's what's going to happen. I'm not doing this to make you feel bad, and I'm not doing this for you to sign up on a piece of paper. I can go to any church and, and talk about this with any volunteer area. But what I'm saying is, if we're not even investing in that generation, you know what's going to happen in a few generations from now? We're not going to have anybody to be missionaries. So what are we doing about it? Are we giving back? You've got to live sent in your generosity. We don't need your money. God doesn't need your money. But the truth is, the to get into a building, to reach new areas, to train new church planners, to make disciple makers, to train disciple makers, to have missionaries and pastors, that takes money. I'm not worried about it because the money is in the bank. It's just temporarily been held in your account. But I unashamedly ask you, what has God entrusted to you? Are you living a sent life in your generosity? And are you living sent in your faith? Because I want you to believe that God is with us for the future. And not just our church, but the church of the world. The mission of God will continue. So here's, here's the way that we do that. We just spend a lot of time just praying for people and opportunity and then jumping on those things. And so as we respond this morning and sing, as we're singing, just take a few moments and do this. Just pray and ask God. In these four areas, am I, am I living sin? Am I living 
Um, am, am I engaging and seizing opportunities? Am I missing the opportunities that you've given me? Do some self-reflection right here. And see what he says. Because I promise he's going to poke you. He's got some things that he wants to work. But, but even for like inviting people to your small group or to, your, to a cup of coffee or even the church. Have you prayed for them? Because I want you to take the next few minutes as we sing and pray for that person in your work. Pray for that person that is your neighbor that you say will never darken the doors of a church. I want you to pray for that person right now. You know who they are. Their name just came in the head. And if you just got that name in their head, that's, that's the Spirit telling you to go and pray for them. I want you to believe God for the people in your life, that they'll come to know Him. Because we've been given a power by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah, our King. So Father, I pray in these next moments that you would work in our hearts and our lives, that you would reveal some things to us that we need to, we need to work on, that you would bring your, your conviction to us and your counsel in this moment. And I pray that their neighbors, sisters, brothers, parents, grandparents, that, that even in our, our close everyday lives that do not know you, I pray right now that you would just give us the courage to seize that opportunity and share the gospel with them. So God, just move in this room now as we know you will. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.